going to ask you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew 26. If you're like me, you probably have made plans at some point in your life that you have failed to keep. Here we are getting close to the end of the year. It's hard to remember back to January of 2020, but back in the beginning of the year, it's possible that some of us made some resolutions, some determinations of things that we would do this year, try to do better this year, or whatever. And uh, of course, this has been one strange year, and uh, many of us have long forgotten those uh, determinations and those plans that we made. Uh, and this is just a sad reality of the way that we that we uh, live, we uh, have to switch to plan B so often, don't we? We start out with one idea in mind and we end up going with something entirely different. Why is it that our plans often come to nothing? Well, sometimes it's just that, I don't know, we lack the willpower to see them through, right? I guess maybe that's one of the most common things. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Sometimes it's just pure forgetfulness. We get so caught up in the, the other things around us, we completely forget the things that we have determined to do, distractions come in our path. Sometimes it's, it's actually a change of mind. We just come to think differently about the situation. We realize that our original plan wasn't, good or wise or workable or whatever. And sometimes I think we fail to keep our plans just because the circumstances are out of our control. You know, we had good intentions and, if we, and, and, and we would if we could, but we found that we just can't deliver on what we uh, planned. But I want to remind you this morning brothers and sisters and friends, that God Almighty has had a plan from before the foundation of the world, and His plan has been to save sinful, fallen men from His own just wrath by the giving of a substitute, by giving Himself as a substitute in the person of His Son, and that His Son has freely entered into that plan full-hearted and determined to lay down his life in order to redeem for himself a people. And I want to remind you that what Christ determines to do, he sees it through. And this is a great hope that we have illustrated even in this passage before us. And it has strengthened my own failing faith. And I pray that it will be a balm to your soul. In the text, that is our assignment for this morning, Matthew chapter 26, we see that God's plan is beginning to come to fruition. Jesus has said, my time is at hand. Everything is falling into place exactly like God ordained exactly as the scriptures had predicted 
from ages past and exactly in the way that the Son of God is directed. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 26, and beginning in verse 46, actually. So the last verse of that previous paragraph, Matthew 26, 46, Jesus says to his disciples, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And when they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out, to, uh, uh, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. From a human perspective, looking at this, this is about the lowest point in Jesus' life. He is being turned over to his enemies. His friends are abandoning him. He's at his most vulnerable. He's a victim of the circumstances. He's being taken into custody and to be tried and executed. The Bible says they laid hands on him and seized him. From all outside perspective, he is a victim. But that is not the way it really was. Amen? And the gospel writers are intent to make that clear for us. Because the Gospels are recording not merely some bare facts of history. They are recording facts, to be sure. But they are showing us what really is taking place so that we can have eyes to see. And even as we talk about these historic events that happened some 2,000 years ago, that we can see them for what they really are. So open your eyes. Hear the word. Let the inspired writer show us what's really happening that dark night in Gethsemane. What we see in Matthew's gospel as we read this text is a Christ who is in control, who is himself orchestrating the events even of his own arrest 
And that is, in fact, what every gospel writer demonstrates. And Matthew does it in his own unique way. And this sovereign self-determination is apparent in the way that Jesus interacts with each of four different people or groups. And we'll see that as we look at the text. In fact, you might want to just take a look right now. And what I've done in my Bible is to circle each one of these, but, but you can just see them as we go through. Uh, the first interaction is that Jesus um, talks with his disciples. This begins in verse 46. So I've circled verse 46. Or verses 45 and 46, he's really discussing with his disciples. And then verse 47 through 50 He's interacting with Judas. Then in verses 51 to 54, you see him interacting with a disciple. And then finally in verses 55 to 57, he's interacting with the crowds that have come to arrest him. And so first of all, we see our Lord's control of the situation in his interaction with his disciples. Remember that they'd been praying together, or they were supposed to have been praying together. The disciples, so like us, have fallen asleep in the garden. Jesus comes and he wakes them, and he says to them in verse 46, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And at that very moment, Matthew says that company of evildoers was approaching the garden led by Judas, the betrayer. See, Jesus says, my betrayer is at hand. I want you to notice this, that Jesus was not taken by surprise, right? He wasn't shocked that this man had turned against him. He knew full well what was going to happen to him the moment he got up off his knees in the garden and he calls the disciples to come and go right into the thick of it. John makes this explicit in his gospel, John chapter 18 and verse number 4, when he says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. He could have run, he could have hidden And yet he says to his disciples, come, my betrayer is here, let's go. And I want to remind you that Jesus Christ, our Lord in heaven, knows not only everything about what would happen to him that night, but everything that will happen to you today and tomorrow and a week down the road that you're still concerned about. And next month and next year, our Lord knows all things. And while our Savior could have run or hidden, he stepped towards his betrayer and this band of armed men. Our Lord was not passive in his submission to his Father. Remember in the garden he prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, right? And yet it wasn't that Jesus was feeling coerced to do the will of the Father. This was, in fact, a mutual pact of love within the triune God that set these plans in motion. 
from all of eternity, the Father and the Son, along with the Spirit, determined to display God's justice and righteousness and His mercy and His everlasting kindness. Jesus is demonstrating here His submission to the Father by actively going forward into that plan in which he will lay down his life. Secondly, we see our Lord's control of the situation in his interaction with Judas. This is verses 47 through 50. Judas came to the garden. He led the company to the garden. Of course, Judas had what we would call today insider information. He was one of the group. He knew that Jesus and his disciples often met there in the garden. And so he brought the people to that place. Along with him came a, what Matthew says is a great crowd with swords and clubs. John, in his gospel, um, uses a term that seems to relate to a Roman cohort. So we're talking many, many soldiers, apparently. But in, an, in, any, in any case, there's, there's probably a contingent of Roman guards and then the Jewish temple priests and then perhaps just um, a band of rowdies that uh, were gathered together with sticks and clubs coming in the darkness to lay hold of the Lord of glory. And when they got into the garden, Judas successfully gave them the signal, the traditional greeting, the kiss of greeting on the cheek. And when you see this, Judas says, seize him. So, so far, in that scenario, the actor is Judas, right? Judas knows the place. Judas leads the group. Judas has procured the muscle. Judas gives the sign. It appears to all who are watching without eyes of faith that Judas is in control, that Judas has the upper hand. And of course, we know, too, that the Bible teaches that the night on which Jesus was betrayed, remember when he dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas, the Bible says actually that the devil came and filled Judas, which is an amazingly um, fearful thing to imagine. Someone giving themselves over to sin to such a degree that they become possessed of the devil. They become demonized to themselves, tools in the hand of the evil one. That's the way it was for Judas. And so while we look at the situation and we say, from all outward appearances, Judas had the upper hand, we could all just as well say that from all outward appearances, the devil had the upper hand. It was evil on the throne of this world. And that is honestly how it often 
feels, how it often looks when we are not looking at this world through eyes of faith. It often looks like evil is on the throne and truth is at the scaffold. It often looks like God is not in control, like Christ is not in charge. But that betrays a very human, naturalistic uh, view that is not enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you see through the eyes of the Spirit, when you see through eyes of faith, when you really see what's there, when you really see what's actually happening, then you begin to see that the Lord Jesus was, in fact, in control from the very beginning. Jesus is making use of this betrayal by Judas to bring about God's own ends, right? Is it, is it not true that God ordained that his son be crucified, right? That is true. And that that betrayal, that that, that the crucifixion should happen through a betrayal and all of this was planned by God, predicted by the scriptures. Jesus Christ is bringing it about by his interaction with Judas. God is always in control, even though indeed he gives humans a certain kind of liberty. It's a little bit like um, a hunting dog, a dog that's trained to hunt. And when it is released, the dog is just following its natural hunting instincts and it goes after the animal, but it is kept and released only when and where the master wishes and to his ends and under his limitations. And I want to tell you this morning that the master of heaven is behind every evil that hounds you that the master of heaven has all evil under his control, on a leash, so to speak, only to accomplish his purpose, to, to drive the, the creatures where they need to be in order for God's will to be done. And though you may feel like the jaws are around you and you feel the teeth marks on your neck, those who belong to the Lord he never means it for their ill, but only for their good. The Savior is in control. And you see it in verse 50. This is the key verse, right? He goes to the betrayer. And he doesn't try to dissuade him. He doesn't try to plead for his life. What does he say to Judas? Do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do. He is in absolute control of the situation. The Lord Jesus is laying down his own life. No one is taking it from him. The third instance of his orchestrating his own arrest is in the, his interaction with Peter. And this is in verses 51 through 54. Matthew just says that one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And it's John in his gospel that tells us that that 
disciple was Peter. And that's by now what we know of Peter. That's not too hard for us to imagine. And John um, also tells us that the servant, the servant of the high priest, his name is Malchus. You could just imagine the fear, the tense atmosphere in that garden. And that finally Peter, in a good-hearted move, though ill-advised, takes out his sword and goes for this guy. And it's just the mercy of God that he didn't drive that thing into the man's brain. But he cuts off the ear. One of the other Gospels tells us that our Lord places it back and heals that man miraculously. Another act of the grace of the Savior to heal the servant of those who are coming to do him ill. It's no wonder Peter says that being reviled, he did not revile in return and teaches us to do good in the face of evil. Once again, Jesus takes charge of the situation, though. Because remember, the plan of God is for the Son of Man to go to the cross. And here is Peter, as it were, standing in the way of God's plan, as, as if anyone could, right? Just as earlier, when Jesus said, I'm going to go, it's, it's necessary for the Son of Man to go and be crucified, and Peter said, no, Lord, let, let it not be so. And the Lord says, no, this is, the, this, is the, this is the word of Satan. This is the word of the, the enemy. So here, again, our Lord rebukes Peter because this is not the plan of God. Jesus is absolutely, you see his absolute determination here, right? Do you not? To, to, to fulfill what God has planned and what the scriptures have ordained. And so Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. And he gives two reasons why Peter should do that. The first is the more general reason. Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I don't believe that by this Jesus means an absolute prohibition against all self-defense. And I think the reason I believe that is that in John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus had told the disciples that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus told the disciples, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and go buy a sword. This is a challenging passage, but I think what he probably intends is an admonition against resorting to preemptive violence in the face of injustice. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And I think that message, this admonition against resorting to violence, needs to be heard today. It, there's a lot of, there are a lot of violence going on. This message needs to be heard by both those who are endorsing the violent protests that are going on all over the country in the name of Black Lives Matter and so forth. And also by those who are sympathetic 
with the men who were indicted for attempting to kidnap the governor of Michigan, viewed her as a tyrant for violating their constitutional rights. Jesus says to Peter, all who live by the sword will perish by the sword. Friends, think about this. Early Christianity grew to cover the entire Roman Empire, not by Christians taking up arms and fighting for their liberty, but rather by Christians who were willing to lay down their lives in Roman Colosseums. It was the blood of the martyrs some of whom wrote letters to churches saying, do not try to rescue me from martyrdom. It was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church. But not only did Jesus say that Peter's taking up the sword was not productive, he also said, and I think this is more significant to what's about to happen, it's not necessary, Peter, It's not necessary. Look at verse 53. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father and he will not at once send 12 legions of angels to rescue me? There is, in fact, all around us a very real spirit world. And this is something that, you know, purely naturalistic thinking does not see or acknowledge. But the Bible teaches us that the angelic world is real, that these are mighty creatures made by God and more powerful than human beings. Remember the account of back in the days of Hezekiah and God sent one of these creations, one of these creatures down to the earth around uh, the uh, army of the Assyrians, and that in one night, that one angelic creature slew 185,000 of the enemy. That's one angelic creature. And Jesus says here, God could send legions. If I were to just say the word, my father in that very moment would send 12 legions of a legion of angels for every one of us. Myself and all of the other 11 disciples, a, a legion, a Roman legion was five, 6,000 troops. Imagine that many angels. I mean, it's, it's not necessary, Peter, for you to pull out your little sword and try to uh, bring God's plan to, to fruition. In fact, you're standing in the way of God's plan. If that really was God's plan, I could have done that. And that would have been no problem. If Christ had not willed this arrest to go forward, there is no way that it would have succeeded. There's just no way. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and for me. It was Christ's determination to restrain the forces of men and of angels that facilitated this arrest that would lead to his suffering and death. And Christ had determined for this to go forward because this was God's plan. And it had 
been predicted long ago in the scriptures. And that point is reinforced in the fourth interaction that Jesus has, and that is with the crowds. You see this in verses 55 through 57 in your text. The crowds who came to arrest Jesus. Jesus turns to them, you see, and he says, Have you come out as against a robber? And Josephus, um, the ancient writer, actually uses this term to refer to Jewish uh, zealots, insurrectionists against Rome. Jesus says, have you come out against me like against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. What's this designed to do? I think it's designed to do a couple of things. First, to prick their consciences. If what they were doing was a truly lawful, righteous thing, then why do they not do it in the day? Why don't they do it in public? Why do they have to sneak around, resort to bribery and intrigue? And I think he also says this to demonstrate his control over the situation. Remember all those times? We talked about this a few weeks back, right? Remember all those times that they had attempted to lay hold of him? That they had attempted, they had sent their emissaries to try to trip him up? Remember they had put forward some strange conundrum to try to get him in trouble with the people or with the authorities so that they could have an excuse to arrest him? But how did all of those situations end? Do you remember? The people walked away, stumped, silenced, Nothing more to say. In fact, later, when some of them were questioned, they said, uh, some of the guards were questioned as to why they hadn't arrested Jesus. They said, no one ever spoke like this guy. That's the way every situation ended up when they tried to trip him up and trap him and get some pretext in order to arrest him. Every time he used his words to tie them into knots. But having failed now to silence him in open public debate, they resort to secrecy and force. And they come after him as if he were a common criminal, an insurrectionist. And even now, though he could, if he wanted to, do the exact same thing he had done a hundred times before and tie them into knots and send them back with their tails between their legs, now... Of all times, he holds his tongue. Why? Because our Lord is controlling the situation. All this happened, Jesus says in verse 56. All of this is happening exactly like it's happening. Everything that's just happened has happened exactly this way so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus was absolutely determined to do God's will in accordance with the scriptures that had been predicted from long before. And they had. And this is an amazing thing. You know, the longer that I have studied the scriptures, the more I have become amazed and astounded at the unity of the Bible and the amazing fulfillments of prophecy. 
For example, what prophecies were, uh, were fulfilled in, in just these events that took place that night in the garden? Perhaps Jesus was thinking of passages like Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And the psalmist is writing this not only about his personal experience, but as a prophet about the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. His close friend, with whom he ate bread at the table, would turn against him and betray him. Or in how about Psalm 22, verse 16? Perhaps this is another passage Jesus had in mind that was constraining his thinking and, and, and leading him to direct these events exactly the way he was directing them. Psalm 22, you know, is the passage of Jesus, the great prophetic passage about Jesus' crucifixion and his sufferings. It's the passage where it talks about his, uh, his hands and feet being pierced and where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And notice here it says that a company of evildoers encircles me. And here is Jesus and his disciples in the garden and this host of armed men all around him. And he says, it's all happening the way it's happening in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Or perhaps he had in mind Isaiah chapter 53, that great passage of prophecy uh, regarding our Lord's crucifixion and the substitutionary nature of the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 we read that he that is the Messiah was numbered with the transgressors. That is, he was treated like a criminal. They considered him to be a criminal. That's the way he was arrested. Or how about Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he Open not his mouth. Doesn't mean he didn't say anything. He didn't say all the things he could have said, all the things he would uh, had said before that got him out of the situation. And now he says nothing to thwart this because this is exactly what he intends to have happened. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And of course, that's exactly what happened. They come at him with great oppression of anything resembling righteousness, due process, truthfulness. Or perhaps he had in mind the passage that he had already quoted to the disciples earlier in the evening from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, that's exactly what happened. Jesus directs them in the garden knowing what will happen. He directs Judas to do what you came to do. He directs Peter to put away his sword. If I wanted to stop this, I could. And he directs the crowds that everything that they're doing is exactly what God planned to be done and what he had prophesied from ages past. You see, in every step of the way, right? Do you see this? That the Lord Jesus is in control. 
that he himself is moving this, this whole course of events to the conclusion which he is certain is the will of God. And he is unflinching in that determination to move things to that end. And to that end, he is in control. He himself is laying down his life. You know, what does all this mean for us? Well, first of all, who can stand uh, and read this passage? Who can... Who can look at this and not be amazed at the obedience and the resolve of the Savior and rejoice that his obedience is our righteousness? His determination to do the Father's will, his active obedience to God, his obedience in his passion on the cross, his ultimate act of obedience here in the culmination of his life, this becomes the obedience of all those who put their faith and trust in him. All of us who lack the determination, the willpower, the, re- the remembrance, the, 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 the whatever it is in order to be able to do God's will like we know we should, here's the one who did it in order to bring salvation to us. And it was in the Lord Jesus Christ And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have hope. That night when the Lord Jesus resolved and determined to do God's will, as he had always done, your salvation was settled because it rested on him. Secondly, this should cause us to be eternally thankful that our master's plan is big enough that it encompasses even human failure. That God's plan is big enough that it encompasses even our failures. Even the fact that Jesus' own disciples would fail, the fact that they would run away, that they would flee, was predicted by the Scripture, right? True? It was predicted by the Scripture. Their failure of faith did not subvert the plan of God. Christ, in fact, reminded them that very night that that even though they would fail, that that was predicted long ago to be a part of God's plan. And that is comforting to me, encouraging to me, and I think to most every Christian in this sense that every one of us can look back on our lives and look at times of which we are now ashamed. We look back and we say, I messed up. I messed up in a big way. And my fear might be that I have somehow destroyed God's plan for my life. That I can somehow now never be what God wants me to be. I can never somehow do or fulfill what God wants me to do or fulfill. That I have thwarted somehow the plan of God. 
Now, I want to be very careful here and by no means to imply that we do not bear responsibility for our actions, for our sins, and for our failures. That is by no means true. But I do mean to to show you that God's plan is bigger even than your failures. That God's plan is so vast that it encompasses everything, good and bad, so that we can have hope that God will bring his purposes to pass for us and in us and through us. I don't know if that encourages you. I hope it does. I hope you don't take this and run the wrong way with it. But I hope that it will give you some hope that you don't have to always look back to the past and to the failures, but that you can look forward with confidence knowing that God is sovereign over all of it. Number three, because of this passage, I think we can be certain that Jesus Christ will do everything necessary in order to fulfill the scriptures. Would you not say that that's what's happening here? He is doing everything necessary to fulfill the scriptures, and I think that it will include everything that God has predicted, not only for that night 2,000 years ago, but that God has predicted for you and for your life. Everything that God has predicted, Christ will do everything necessary to bring that to pass. That's my preservation as a believer, my sanctification, my growth, my victory over sin and growth in holiness and love for the Lord, all the way up to my inhabiting glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will do everything necessary to bring God's promises to pass. Our security rests in the resolve of our Savior. Amen? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I love this passage. He prays, Paul prays, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, preserved, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse is what gives you hope. Faithful is he who called you. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ was resolved to do everything necessary to make sure that God's promises were fulfilled. And just as he did that night, all those years ago, he is continuing to do now in your life and in mine. And that brings me to this lastly, that I think this passage can give us a confidence a confidence in our Savior's sovereign command over all things, including the very worst things that we can possibly imagine. The save, confidence in the Savior's sovereign command over all things, including the absolute worst things that you can possibly imagine. This was Jesus Christ's worst day, so to speak, up to this point. And yet he is in absolute charge of it. Every detail of it. He's moving every piece into place as he wills. 
to fulfill the will of God in accordance with the scriptures. And there is such great hope in that, that on the worst day of your life, the worst day of your life, your Savior is sovereign over that day. Those worst 45 minutes of your life, the Savior is sovereign over those 45 minutes. Those worst events that happen in quick succession, one after another after another, that bowl you over and completely knock the wind out of you, your Savior is sovereign over every one of those moments. There is such great hope in this. I leave you with this passage from Romans chapter 8 where Paul just expounds on this idea in such a beautiful way. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35. You know it well, I'm sure. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, let me ask you. Did persecution or sword, or oppression stop the plan of God those 2,000 years ago? Did they stop Christ in his tracks? Absolutely not. He, through those things, was bringing about his purposes, God's purposes. In fact, not, not just through those things, right? Not just in spite of those things, but by those things, he was bringing them He was bringing about God's purpose. By those very things that were so anti-God, Jesus was using those things as a tool to do God's will, to bring all of the prophecies that God had made to fruition. And he's going to do the same for you and for me. Look at verse 36. He says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We, like Jesus are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So what does that mean? Does that mean we're separated from Christ? Does that mean his plans for us are ruined because all of these bad things are are happening in our lives? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ, these troubles actually only serve to further God's plans for our lives. It's a beautiful and astounding thing. And so, verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels in heaven or rulers in heaven and earth or things present, whatever you're going through right now, whatever's just bowling you over, or those things to come. You're thinking in your mind, well, what if this? And what if that? And how will this? And when will that? Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord is in control. 
just as he's always been in control, to bring about the purposes of God. And your security rests in the measure of your Savior's determination. So rejoice in the Lord Jesus.